0: If you can hear this and you're a citizen of the United States and you can vote early, please go vote. And I'll remind you again next week, please vote on or before November 3rd. It's so important. I let the show go a little bit longer today as Ernest and I get to talking about a bunch of cultural touch points that we clearly care a lot about. We touch on everything from men's fashion to sports to movies and TV. I hope you enjoy the show. Ernest Wilkins is someone I've known for nearly a decade, and no matter where we are, how we would bump into each other, I would always find myself bowing at the altar of his mastery of observation, of mixing cultural references, anchoring them in a currency of certain social constructs. Ernest is a writer and media entrepreneur whose work has appeared in publications like the Chicago Tribune, Complex, GQ, Pitchfork, and Rolling Stone. Find his work and subscribe to his popular daily email newsletter at officehours.substack.com. And be on the lookout for his new project, Game Day Grails. Ernest, welcome to the No First Podcast. Hi,
1: what's up, man? How are you?
0: I'm excited I'm to be good. here. It's so good to talk to you today.
1: You too, man. I'm happy. Uh, this is funny. <laughs> like, I've just it's been I've known you for so long, Max.
0: It's crazy, it's been almost ten years. I know, it's crazy. You were writing for the red eye? wrote something that like really resonated and then we just started hanging out
1: for sure and Um, it was also like we were that you were definitely like one of the first like hashtag menswear influencers and so it's really sick because i think a lot of people who were around during that era like i remember that and it was like ooh i remember like walking to the spots max is like like, okay i'm in here with somebody it was sick (laughs) that was an era
0: that's so not true i really appreciate it but where was menswear for you at the time Like where was it in your universe? Cause you, what were you writing for the red eye?
1: I was writing about just basically my job was like the gimmick that I had was I'm the wingman for the city and the target demographic for the newspaper that I'm writing for. So I'm just basically, I know what you're into. I know what you're doing. I know where you are. I'm out there with you most likely. So what do you need to know? And like, I wrote stuff that was like, I go back and I look at it now and it's like really embarrassing, but like, how to pick up somebody at a baseball game. And I gave you a guide for each stadium because there's different rules for each stadium. You know what I mean? You got to approach things different ways. So like that kind of stuff, like literal, like wingman. I always, uh, I pat myself on the back because I say I'm responsible for five marriages and two children. And that's a great lifetime average. I'll take that. You know what I mean?
0: Wait, are you really?
1: <laughs> yeah, 100%. It's not a joke. Like truly, there are five marriages, still active by the way, that I introduced those two people, and, and then then he ended up getting married. Um, and because of your column, because of the, yeah, because literally, because like, of the ba- baseball article. Because that, the- not the baseball article, but some tactics from that baseball article did help one of my friends get married. but Amazing. No, truly, like <laughs> I would be out and about, and it was truly like I and I shout out uh, Tron Ha, who was the great um, editor who ran like Red Eye during its like absolute pinnacle she was basically like, you are the demographic. I need you to go out like every single night for two months. Just go out and meet everybody, do everything, see everything, know everything. And I was like, okay. And you have to understand for context, when I started at the Tribune, I was like the first social media intern, in Red Eye's history. might've been one of the first for Trib's history. And I was sleeping on my best friend Hank's floor on a mattress, like literally a mattress on the floor at my buddy Hank's house and did that for the first year that I worked at the trip. So like internships, like I'm always like pay your interns because it was, if not, if I didn't get paid from the Chicago Tribune, like I truly wouldn't have had any money at all. But it was, you're young, you were living with your buddies. And at some point I'm gonna probably like turn that into a screenplay of some sort or maybe like a pilot, but like truly imagining the most like debaucherous postgraduate experience you can imagine. And and in the morning, I'm getting up and going to a newspaper and file, filing columns. But then also that afternoon, I'm so broke, I'm stealing the pizza that would be in the newsroom. Like newsrooms, are like major events, like presidential election, that kind of stuff. Any election, they'll bring pizza to the newsroom. This may not be the case anymore, but it was when I was there. And like, you want to talk about like the differences in opinions about journalism. I think a lot of people assume that like media types and reporters and writers are all like these like moneyed like East Coast, like... Medill list listserv types but it's honestly like I was truly stealing pizza and then going outside <laughs> and then going to Rossi's there's god bless that place and getting like a pitcher of beer for four bucks or six bucks and then split it with the other folks who worked at Red Eye we were out here
0: <laughs> it was a time when there was just so much like grunt work to it too mm-hmm. so you were at Red Eye at the yep. Tribune yep. what for, for listeners not from Chicago how do you describe Red Eye
1: the red eye is a daily, it was a daily tabloid, style so newspaper directly targeted at millennials. And it was the first major attempt by an old media standard to do like a daily tabloid. You saw, I think AM New York is kind of probably the closest thing, but it was crazy cause red eye was innovative because it was like, all right, cool. It isn't just like older people writing about youth culture. It was millennials writing and talking. It was like the two way communication. So like we got to a point where it was studied by a lot of people. And to the point where, like, this dude who runs, like, Der Spiegel, this crazy, amazing, like, German news source, was on some interview on, like, Monocle or something. It was just like, this Red Eye in Chicago. They're inspiring us to make great. I don't know what accent that was, but you get it. <laughs> but to that point, it was an experiment because for a lot of us, that was our first job. Like, our first job out of school. And it's crazy because we joke about it, but I think Red Eye was early on a lot of things. For example, this is a fun little media fact and you can back it up and you can check it. Whoever you are, go look it up. Red Eye Chicago at one point was the most circulated newspaper in the city of Chicago. If You think about the city of Chicago, two Titan papers, the Tribune and the Sun-Times. At one point, I was in more hands, in more faces, in more, literally more people were reading it than those two, compa- those two papers. So you start to notice, okay, this thing is getting hot. And then what got crazy, and this is the part, I, I, I think there's a metaphor here. Red Eye Chicago is the only major publication that has ever moved over 150,000 in circulation that has n- had a female editor-in-chief from the beginning till now. Whoa. The only one on the world, in the world. And, and, and if I'm wrong, please feel free to send Max an email. But <laughs> truly, yeah. like, history. So it was cool to be a part of- bar-
0: Care of Ernest Wilkins.
1: <laughs> there's, there's probably four- three to five New York Times reporters, writers, designers, art people that came directly out of Reddit. Like my interns write from the New York Times now, which makes me feel kind of, I gotta get my shit together. <laughs> <laughs> it was a crazy experiment. I'm happy to be a part of it because the other side of it was we were the young people. And so we got the, like, the resentment and the hate from like older journalists. But at the same time, we also got to get them on a new media. So like I was on the team that helped the Tribune, like, personalities and journalists and writers get on Facebook. So for better or for worse, I was in the room with Tom Skilling setting up his Facebook page. You know what I'm
0: saying? Yeah.
1: (laughs) In morning news team, we were setting up their Facebook pages. So like that whole new media, old media, like surge, I walked right into the eye of the hurricane with that and then everything just went crazy. So that was nuts, but it was a hell of an era and it was a lot of experimentation.
0: I was at timeout at the same time Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and it was just the best business card you could have. Uh, oh like God. you were saying, my boss just said, okay, so your beat is restaurants, bars, music venues, right. go out, be with the people. We used to have a um, little crew too. There
1: was like, you could tell like the press people who were annoyed with like the people who wanted to be like, I, call, I used to call them like faux Like Chicago is like most cities where there's a group of people who are doing cool stuff. But the majority, and this is something my dad used to say, Chicago is one of those cities where the people with taste have no money and the people with money have no taste. it's true and you can like look i know i'm right so (laughs) it's one of those things where when you found the people with taste who didn't have any money you're like all right cool it and and chicago is very much like a finesser capital so it's also okay we're going to these press events and you remember like eating dinner off press events
0: oh yeah (laughs) i was eating mini hot dogs on on uh,
1: serving trays lots of little grilled cheeses
0: oh yeah (laughs) the the mini burger it was like the side of, size of the pickle slice.
1: But then you had to dress nice, so you couldn't really eat for real. So you had to tuck off in the corner yeah. and finesse the little thing with the napkin, that weird toothpick sword <laughs> thing that everybody does. What's with the sword thing? Like, at least the plastic one is one thing. You got to take the bent little piece of... Bur- what was that? It was like a tree barker, like bamboo or something. It was stupid. I didn't like it. If you were a caterer or an event planner, stop using those things. Just an aside.
0: <laughs> so is that world still your world? Do you still?
1: Not as much. I stopped full-time writing. And this is a heads up to any rappers who are still sending me your links to your music. I stopped writing about full-time 2017. And I was, I think I'm one of many where, you know, one of the biggest kind of ramifications, I think, from like the blog era was a lot of people who were writers or were talent or were whatever on, on one side of it, on the editorial side, are just like so burnt out that we all just left <laughs> and everybody went to advertising or marketing or copywriting or whatever. So you're starting to see it now, which is funny because we're talking about like newsletters. Like that to me is the logical evolution of what was. Because our demographic, as we get older, especially the elder millennials, like we love reading. And we're the last generation that's like really trying to read some shit. So it's let me just go ahead and serve my people.
0: <laughs> Talk to me about how you first encountered Substack. What was it like for you? And then how has it been? How's it been going?
1: So I'll preface this statement with saying, like, the thing you need to know about me in general is I'm forever curious, forever. No, like I'm the kid who got a sense of for asking why. Not because I was a jerk, because I just, I want to know why. I started a newsletter because I got pressured to start a newsletter a year and a half before. And so my wife, shout out to my wife. She's amazing. Hi, Maggie. My uh, like my like, I think like I'm her mentor, but she's my mentor, Hannah, and then the the great writer Samantha Irby. They were just like, and she's like my my play cousin, but they're like, why aren't you writing stuff? We like you writing. Why aren't you writing? And I was just like, I don't want to write because like I don't have opinions about Drake right now. You know what I mean? I don't have opinions about the stuff I used to write about. And truthfully. I, the stuff that, and I think this is a very interesting little subplot of like media going down the toilet, all the stuff that we used to be able to write like random blog posts for like your grant lens of the world, that stuff doesn't pay anymore because the niche audiences aren't as scale as the media organizations. So basically I can get paid a hundred bucks for something that will take me two days work to work or three days, four days worth of work, which, mm, or I can just be like, okay, I'm going to go directly to the people who are either interested in me or interested in the thing I'm talking about. And so a year and a half later, because again, ADHD is real, folks. I got diagnosed earlier this year, and a lot of stuff makes sense. So truly, go get tested if you can. But a year and a half later, starts it on tiny letter that like service. I was just getting, I got about 100 subscribers pretty quickly, which is crazy. And I was like, okay, cool. So people are interested. And then, I got put on a sub stack and actually um, the founder, one of the co-founders hit me on Twitter and was just like, Hey, we love what you're doing. And so I signed up for it and you just move, I move my list over. And it was great because from day one, it helped with the payments side of things, which is great. And like, for me, removing steps and setting up a system is essential, right? Let's make this as easy as possible for me. So they make it easy for me to do. I think the fact that the customization is minimal is great because then it can focus on the work and what we're writing about. Plus then I'm not overthinking everything cause I will. And then other than that, the community was great and they were really supportive of Jump. Like I got featured as like one of their like writers to watch within like the first six months of them existing or something. And I think a lot of people when it comes to Substack and newsletters in general, like office hours will turn two this coming January. And so to that extent I'm early, but at the same time there's folks who've been doing these since 05. You know what I mean? And you look at those heavy hitters, and I think what I want people to understand is you've seen a lot of articles about like, oh, newsletters are the way, they're the source and the future of the the media industry. I disagree. I think just like everything else, there's gonna be some who have huge audiences, there's gonna be some who have some little audiences, and there's gonna be people who just are doing their thing to a very small group. And I think for the first time in media for, I don't know when it could have happened before, but it's not mass, it's niche. So instead of me trying to worry about writing stuff and featuring people that'll get me on the New York Times, my list is my list. They know what they're signing up for. They know what I'm giving them and I'm going to give it to them. And I'm going to overserve them and I'm going to give them direct value every time they can open it up. They know they're going to get something they want and they know I'm not going to waste their time because it's been curated. So from there, it's truly just like the value of your attention for my curation. And that's pretty much it.
0: Do you think that anyone getting onto Substack now that doesn't already have a baked in audience, are they too late? No,
1: not at all. I think you're still early. I think what I will tell you is what I tell people who have been just like pinging me on LinkedIn. Sidebar, if you don't know me, get to know me before asking for something. Just a general aside. Anyway.
0: Wait, let's back that up a little bit. You mentioned LinkedIn. Then you said, if you don't know me, get to know me before you ask me for something. Yeah, 100%. I get six to seven messages every day from someone selling something.
1: Mm-hmm. And they're, or, they're a hacker or a sales ninja. Also sidebar. Let me talk about that really quickly. Yeah. The ninja thing. So if you can't, <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm an African-American male. And I think being around media as long as I have, I've noticed the ninja thing pop up in like the early 2010s. And I want to be clear. We, y'all ain't slick, bro. We know what that is. So go ahead and divest ninja from your vocabulary. You ain't trying to be a ninja. You ain't stealthy. You're sitting in a room with a Doctor Who t-shirt on, (laughs) fixing a server. You're not a ninja if you can do kerning really well. Get out of here.
0: So I love the way that you've set this up Mm -hmm. because you've been this mediaite, this media hound.
1: Yeah. The new phrase they're calling us, and this is for you to know, they're calling us media operators now. That's oh the new buzzword. So, that's a spoiler. So, you're a media operator. I've heard curator. I've heard digital nomad. I've heard like people will make up a phrase. Let me tell you, if we spend as much time making up names for ourselves as we did on the work, we probably make better stuff. It's true. <laughs> as an industry.
0: It's true. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're at the, the point in the show where we can talk about what's in your cookies. Yeah. This is your opportunity to talk about what you read, watched, listened to, looked at shopped for this week but we always start with what's your actual favorite cookie
1: all right my favorite actual cookie and it's a very specific cookie so you got to tap it okay my favorite cookie of all time it's a brand called otis spunkmeyer otis spunkmeyer double chocolate chip cookie now this is a chocolate cookie with white chocolate and milk chocolate in it every cookie is perfect. I don't know if it's preservatives. I don't know if it's big cookie working behind the scenes, but I've never had a bad one. I've had them from multiple places across the country. There's never been a bad one. There's a, there is a hotel. I want to say either in Texas or New Orleans that I stayed at once that had the cookie. They had like their version of it. it wasn't the same but it was a good cookie. So shout out to that hotel. I'm
0: wondering where can you get Otis Spunkmeyer? Is there like a gas honestly, station that, that's
1: or give it like you got to just be in the right like <laughs> truck stop. You got to yeah. be in the right truck stop on the right or deck, like
0: some right like top. mom and pop movie theater. Yeah. Like right? Otis
1: Spunkmeyer cookies are like the original supreme, where it was just like you just had to know about them, <laughs> you see them. And the ones who know, and they get them, and the rest of you oh just gotta my wait.
0: God, did you just compare Otis Smukmeyer to Supreme? I just want to yeah. make sure we got okay. So yeah, please let that be the soundbite, mind you. So anybody that's listening to this from Supreme, yeah, I'm you guys are missing right now. It's really great because
1: I was like I liked every episode, but number nine. I... <laughs>
0: I can totally see that being a collab though. I love it. The little uh, wax paper bag, but mm-hmm. it's the supreme mm-hmm. bag, and then they, they like uh, grill it. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> like, yeah, rais- it's
1: like a weird like cookie oven like The thing. raisins
0: or the chips are in the supreme mm-hmm. logo. <laughs> supreme logo- like a, like a
1: little, it's like the it's like the Quiznos like thing. They local the belt and they come out all hot. Well, or
0: for the higher end customer, the the umami burger. Like, yeah, that's buns, the bun stamp.
1: <laughs> <laughs> People were really stamping buns out here in the twenty ten.
0: They were watch. thinking about it. They that were, was like they were...
1: like restaurants. It would be like, sure. welcome to Extreme Steakouts. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a fucking, why are you
0: branding your butt? Oh like, why are you branding
1: God. your butt?
0: All right, Ernest. Yes. What's in your cookies this week?
1: Oh, uh, man, I got a lot of stuff. Uh, my, okay, so this week um, in my newsletter, Office Hours, and I'll do my quick little plug. Office Hours is a newsletter for busy people who only want the best cultural analysis music, and marketing tips in their inboxes. That's it. That's all. And so this past week, I wrote about this new metric. And I know you've worked in marketing, so you understand what this is. But the thing is, if you don't work in marketing, you should know. Marketing people love a metric because it justifies our existence. So if we can hit a goal, a number, then we
0: continue to stay employed. Also, if you have the metrics in front of you, you can mess with them. Yes, In such a way to justify your- your, That's why I don't trust anyone who's like,
1: anyone who ever says, oh, algorithms are bias proof. And it's not because a human being made those algorithms. And let me tell you, I'll tell you, like I told my buddy when it comes to COVID numbers, if my job depends on a number being a certain thing, you better believe it's going to be that thing, whether that number is real or not. And it's like, (laughs) if men lie and women lie, numbers lie too. But long story short, So the metric thing exists as a way to validate return on investment for advertisers and marketing people and clients, all that great stuff. So they are now, and by they, a couple of folks, including Condé Nast.
0: Pamela Druckerman at Condé Nast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Heck of a summer. (laughs) They they really lived to have a kick-ass summer too hard. I'm guessing that they did this as a way to shore up their influence because as print goes away, digital translates, ETC, ETC. They're basically framing share of culture as the new metric in which they're going to work with their advertisers to win. So they're back the strategy that they revealed during advertising week. And they worked with Deloitte on this, which those good folks at Deloitte, they basically figured out a way to measure cultural influence, which I'm laughing saying it because it's so silly, but basically they were like, okay. The platform Instagram has X amount of share of culture. So in general, just how many people are inspired, are seeing Instagram as a place where trends happen, where they can go to learn stuff. And so they put all of their properties into this algorithm. And wouldn't you believe that their properties altogether are more influential via share of culture than TikTok, the entire site and everyone on it. And so you say to that, okay, that's interesting because they're not wrong because TikTok as a brand has, they're not even 10 years in. So you say to yourself, you think about the Connie Nast umbrella includes GQ, Vogue, I think Pitchfork, um, Bon Appetit. So like you think about the titans of old media. The New Yorkers. I would say this is an accurate measure because I would say... Getting featured in GQ is a huge moment and it's kind of a cultural, you have made it in a sense. It's one of the like goals. I'd say the New York Times is a huge share of culture. And so that concept basically means if you have real influence to the point where you can post something or you can share something and people will actually make a decision, aka buy or share or whatever. If you, can, if you have enough influence to make people act, that's basically what they're measuring now. And so for me, I think it goes one of two ways. With that, like, first off, how do you feel about that?
0: I'm happy that somebody thought to do this. But at the same time, I think that it's really hard to say. It's right. really hard. It's really hard to, to, for the ways to justify the means on this. The, you were saying that TikTok's not 10 years old. TikTok's not five years old. Yeah. Instagram's only nine years old. Really? Yeah. I think it started to really hit in 2010. I don't know. What do and you think? Like, what What do you, what would you use this for? What would you use tool this tool for? Right.
1: Then this is the best case scenario for young people slash creators who don't have huge budgets slash people who are from marginalized groups that get their stuff taken. And then a brand makes a terrible version of it. This is how you can do it. Essentially what they're saying is this niche, right? So let's say we'll do menswear, right? So let's say menswear, the menswear niche I'm just going to use names for fake, so this isn't a real thing. This isn't actually how I feel. So let's say Michael Williams and Continuous Lean has a dominant share of culture when it comes to menswear. Let's say Sartorialist had it, but it isn't as dominant because he's not as active anymore. And then you throw in I don't know GQ, Todd Snyder, whatever, what have you, Sid Nashburn, all that. So that all is. People who have market share of the culture when it comes to menswear, aka these people, when they do something or they release something, Ame, Leon Dore, I would say, is like there. Kif. I think, is still um, that kind of depending on what type of clothing you're doing. But anyway, menswear in general. There are people who, when they post something, when they wear something, when they do something in this culture, people pay attention and it either translates directly to the sales or translates to people watching something or engaging with some content or whatever. So basically they're trying to measure. Do you have enough influence to literally move people to do something? Because if you do, they're basically saying, if we are talking about culture and we're talking about what brands mean to culture, like your relationship with a brand is how you see yourself via that brand, if that makes sense. Yeah. So essentially what they're saying is every, they know every market has a culture. So we know menswear has a culture. Tom Brown pants that look like capris, right? That's a menswear cultural thing. If you don't know about it, you don't know about it. But then you look at, uh, like, throwing fits has a huge share of culture, I would say, in, in menswear. But it's basically, it allows for a deeper dive within a culture niche that can translate into sales or engagement. So, like, we have all this stuff that we share, this language, this history, this traditions. But basically, it means that if you have a high share of culture, it means your brand has that weight in your market, regardless how big the market is. So, like, I've always believed that, like, the one-size-fits-all approach to marketing has been dead since minimum 2009. It's been, just, it's been dead. There is no mass media. There is no... You know, remember like Michael Jackson video comes out on three major channels at one time kind of stuff. That's not happening anymore. This is a nail in the coffin because for the first time, brands can't buy their way into something. No matter what anyone tells you, you cannot buy your way into a culture. You are not a member of, you can buy media that targets them. You can buy influencers in that space. You can put on some events that target that space, but you can't buy cool And so that is the advantage that cool people have and people who make cool things for the first time in history.
0: (laughs) I love the way you wrap that up. Yeah. The, I think about it and I think about what I have in here, in my brain Mm and in in my heart Mm -hmm. and what I understand and value in the world Mm -hmm. and how I try to describe things and how I try to share things with folks and it's different. Right. It's not the same as, (laughs) I'm not a follower, I'm not.
1: but here's an interesting thing, now for the first time ever, because it used to be, and I think you and I are in the same path where we put people on the stuff. So for the first time ever, we can actually get acknowledgement for doing that versus what normally happens, which is somebody reads our stuff, they work for a brand, they go do a shittier version of it. And then, like, they may or may not, like, involve Ah. us at, like, a quarter of the amount that they should. So now I can say, because that's why I'm advising creatives and people who are in this space who aren't, like, you know, the micro-influencers revenge is what I'm calling this. Because now it's, yeah, I got 4,000 followers on Instagram, but look at who my 4,000 followers are. And now you can't buy that. And they know, because they've been here for a while. They're not new. You're new. So now you either have to, A do what you've always done and try to come do a crappier version of what you're seeing me do in an attempt to win the market, which you won't do because everybody knows you're new and you're fake brands. Or you can come to me, you can tap in and say, hey, we're aiming at your demographic. What can we do to make your thing cool? Because we know when it comes to this culture, you're the person who has majority of the share of it in terms of the attention. So we can come to you and say, how does our brand help you do your thing? How does our brand Make your life better. So it's of a nice little revenge kind of thing, that the opposite of the blog era, because we all know the brands we choose are the tools we use to say who we are. So to that point, if I know that this person whose aesthetic I admire or aspire to be, I can now take that. And it's great. So I think. Everybody should learn about share of culture. Everybody should learn how to commodify it for your own needs and let's go get it.
0: The brands we choose are the tools we use to show who we are. That's it. Have you ever said that before? Yeah. It's in the article. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so no, let's man. say
0: that one more time. The brands we choose the brands we use. Are, the are the tools we, tools we use. To use to
1: say who we are in a broader social context. That's the full quote, but I always like, just cut it down for the, the sizzle.
0: Whew, this is right, great.
1: Baby. Look, I'm telling you, I want people to understand. If this is your first time checking in. You late? Let's come on. Let's have fun. Well, right well so
0: first. so let's talk about how influence changes over time too. Mm-hmm. The the fact is that ten years ago, pictures that I took were on the wall of a fifty year old fashion house, and I come to find out a, a couple of years later that the founder of that fashion house mm-hmm. had a picture of mm-hmm. me wearing something that I made on his iPhone and was showing it at a factory saying, make this. hmm
1: now I got one of those too. I got a text one time from a friend who works at an ad agency who literally sent me a photo of a deck that is being broadcast in a presentation and it's right. not only me, my picture is on it. I don't know these people, I have no idea where they are and it's a pretty big advertising agency that you all have heard of <laughs> and it's my tweets and my Instagram posts and it's all just in this deck and they're just going through it. And he goes, I've never seen this happen before with somebody I knew.
0: Oh yeah. It's, it's nuts. Have you ever been Photoshopped? I got Photoshopped into an ad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was I got, shocked. I've been Photoshopped on the newspaper actually. I've been Photoshopped. I've been digitally added. I've been like, we needed a black person here. So galleries back in the day. Will you ha- about also, event photographer, if the party ain't that diverse, don't go find the one black person and tell them to pose. I don't care what the client says. If the party is not diverse, that's the brand's problem. Y'all should work on that instead of you trying to lie. So don't so do true. That. Tell the truth.
0: So I started to say how influence changes because I don't know that what I say anymore matters. I think it's different. Um, it, it is. My wife keeps telling me, she's like, you're a different person. You're a stepfather to an almost teenager and an almost 10 year old. And you're a husband and you have priorities that are very different than they were when you were <laughs> you
1: know, a party animal. It's a different audience. And I think the, the, the work and the results of a good career are that your audience grows with you. And I think it would be really weird if you were still out here trying to go be up in everything. I think there's a definite like old guy in the club vibe that comes out sometimes, but sometimes right. it comes to people in these brands in these lanes. <laughs> and it's look, I wrote this thing a long time ago about, so you know how the feeling of you watch the Grammys and you don't know any of the artists that are nominated? Yes. Okay, so that concept, I just put a name on it. It's called cultural fossilization. But basically, the results you're feeling in the I don't have an audience or my influence isn't as big it's a, is because when you are in the 18 to 34 demographic, you are without a shadow of a doubt the most important demographic on the planet. A, a man, 18 to 34. And everything you do has a huge impact because everyone is looking at you, because you are the pinnacle of, and I would say, not demographically, but like socially as a pe- as like animals, you're at the top of the social ladder. So everything you do is important. That's why you set the trends. That's why people will wow. listen to you. That's why people will take a chance on your new music, all of that youth culture. As you, the second you get out of 18 to 34, you'll notice the people who had influence don't have it anymore. And it's because you're not in the center. So yes, you still have influence because you, if you did your job, you built a fan base that grows with you. And so that influence is to me, like I said earlier, I don't have a lot of followers because I think that's the biggest finesse ever because you can buy them. But my audience is not big, but my audience, every single person that follows me and you like the stuff that they make and they work with me and we work together and we crack jokes and get drunk and hang out and we're building stuff that you want to be a part of. And it's not about being arrogant because the truth is anybody can do it. The difference is The people who did it and were like, hey, come with me and built a community around what they were into are the ones that are always going to be influential, no matter what.
0: I I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about just what I'm, the apparatus I'm sitting in right now. Mm -hmm. And I would say 90% of what I have around me is stuff that I either learned about or became a fan of or somehow encountered between the ages of 18 and 34. Jerry Seinfeld has the joke about the dads wear the clothes that are from their last year of (laughs) being happy, (laughs) of being cool or being happy. And
1: I think that's the thing that explains it to people where it's like the priorities change, right? And I'm, I listen to more new music than probably ever all of my friends that are all the same age and you same way. And so you're the same way. and so what happens is nothing changed with you. The only thing that changed with everyone else is they stopped seeking it out. And so... A lot of times what I've noticed, and that's why I call it fossilization, because people will fossilize. It's literally the the Seinfeld joke. You fossilize yourself from the last time you were at the top of the social hierarchy. That's or right. The last time you were cool. Period. Like everybody's <laughs> doing blog house stuff now. It's crazy. Like American apparel sweatshirts and hoodies are coming back. It's weird.
0: Dan Deacon on the reg. <laughs> Oldies one oh three point three. That's yeah. an it's an all Dan Deacon weekend here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: a, a copy weekend, everybody. <laughs> Just like the same song for six hours. I feel like where they were like, all right, we're going to do one song and we're just going to chop it up and put it out in different installments, but it's all just one song.
0: Yep. Anyway. Followed by a week long song set of Matt and Kim.
1: Given from that era, who do you think is going to be like the Eagles of that era? Oh, who do you think is going to be like, all right, folks, we're doing a, Vampire Weekend retrospective. Probably Vampire there, Weekend right? or, like, or John
0: Mayer or like. Mike Mayer,
1: oh my, Mayer's already there. Mayer, is, here's the crazy part. Mayer is already, and I know this because of my little cousins, Mayer's already Eric Clapton to people. What Eric Clapton was for us, yeah, he's so that well, to kids now. And it's like, huh? And you think about it and you're like, damn, that's crazy. Like your body is a wonderland came out as long as Layla came out in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> it's terrifying.
0: It's just, it's different too. I think that rock and roll has had a very different lifespan in hour.
1: I would love to hear your thoughts on rock and roll in general, because I think rap music took over as the most popular music. Oh, like Mid 2000s. Like not even. Not even.
0: I think that rap took over in the mid 90s in terms of the outlier approach to share of culture songwriting yep. the approach to fashion the approach to addressing the social issues of the day yep. that was all happening and it happened in the best way possible in that it blew up on the coasts and then you saw atlanta yep. ohio mm-hmm. st. louis
1: yeah
0: texas houston yeah detroit mm-hmm. it was like bombs were going off mm-hmm month by month in some summers it was like holy crap who's this group out of atlanta that's making music that i can't imagine in my yeah. wildest rosa parks uh, like
1: Outkast, I, I would tell people like Outkast was like a bomb going off in the summer yes. for a lot of people like everybody
0: what in the hell are they doing and, changed like, my life yeah
1: it was changed my life like, i knew about Outkast before just because they were always on rap city and shit and so, like when, when I moved to the birds, my white friends were blown away about Outkast. Oh, they're like, "What is this? This isn't Dr. Dre." I'm like, "I told you."
0: <laughs> Andre was just so—he was so in like my groove. The day I got my driver's license, and my mom said, "You need to go apply for that job at that DJ company." I started DJing, and I never looked back. And that was 1997. And in 1997 in St. Louis, Missouri, people legitimately on the weekends would go to clubs in full head to toe, double knit polyester and do the hustle, doing the hustle, full disco was so important. And then to see Dre dressed like that, Mm -hmm. but then throwing these incredible rhymes that had nothing to do with anything that he was talking about, but then somehow If you turned the table, it was just askew enough that it made perfect sense. And then you had this grounding element in big boy and big boy was like big boy was the reason that I was able to make my prom budget at my high school (laughs) because every year prior they'd done like bake sales. And I said, guys, we are sitting on a treasure trove of vintage sportswear. This, what, this, is, this is what happened my junior year. I went into the attic of the gym and I found all of the tearaway pants and all of this double knit sports gear from my high school from the 70s and the 60s. That's crazy. And I said, let's have a vintage sale. All
1: right, see, look, you get it. You get it. You Everybody
0: get it. bring yeah. their, vintage, their vintage sportswear and we sold out in the weekend and we made more money than anybody had ever made for the prom budget
1: see max you're ahead and it's actually really funny you're talking about vintage sports gear because i'm actually launching well i'm launching something like
0: really okay so i brought this up because i want to talk to you about your new project Mm -hmm. what's it called
1: man game day girls so basically like most projects game day girls started at my bachelor party um my bachelor party before i got married all my best friends were all there we were in Atlanta because Atlanta is a very slept on bachelor party situation. I think a lot of people think like Nashville and like whatever. No, go to Atlanta. Don't go to Atlanta now. Wait until we get vaccines. But went and we were sitting there. And I, the thing you'll always need to know about me is if I know you and we're like, cool, my love language is gifts. So I'll give you stuff. Just because I'm like, I'm thinking about you. You're great. And so I'll ask you pretty early, if we're cool, I'll ask you, what's your team? Who are your teams? Because my biggest thing is this, tradition builds connections, right? So if I can come to you, that's why I like, my dad told me when I was applying for colleges, he goes, you're smart enough, you're gonna get an education anywhere, so it doesn't matter. So go somewhere where you'll have connections because that stuff works. That stuff will get you jobs, that stuff will get you looks that you won't normally get. So go somewhere with good sports, (laughs) consistently good sports. And I listened to my father and went to Florida State University. <laughs> and it's true because I can tell you for absolute, like, tradition builds connections. Like, people, I've gotten callbacks for jobs because they saw that I went to Florida State. They went there and they were like, oh, man. And what he was talking about with the tradition is that everything that comes alongside it. Like, my dad was just, like, really smart.
0: Did you see the Lee Corso thing over the weekend? Was it? Yes. Last weekend, everybody was giving him hell because they were like, Lee Corso's lost his mind because Mm -hmm. he had the Gators head on. Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know, college game day, Mm -hmm. there's an elderly gentleman who he always has a Dixon Ticonderoga pencil in his hand. And he puts on the mascot's head of the team that he picks to win the game that day. And And so Lee
1: Corso used to be the head coach at Florida State. So for a long period of time on college game day, he, if Florida State was like the featured team, he would not pick against Florida State. But then things changed. And now he's just he's impartial, which I respect. Like I get it. but yeah. And so Lee Corso is a very important man in my heart.
0: But people thought he lost his mind because he put the yeah. Gator head on. Put the Gator head Florida on. Florida Gators, the rivals to the mm-hmm. Florida State University yep. Seminoles. But he did the tomahawk chop yes. while wearing because the Gator he, head.
1: That's the thing. And I always want people to understand, Florida State University has two rivals. There's a bunch, but two rivals. There's the University of Miami, not the Miami of Ohio, but Miami, Florida, the Hurricanes, and the Florida Gators. I would say any real Seminole fan will tell you the rivalry with Miami is a big brother, little brother, like showing each other up. It's a love competition. Like, you, it's com- competition, but there's some love behind it. Like You're going to fight, but you're going to hug afterwards. Florida, <laughs> Florida State is the exact opposite. And I say this as a grown man who knows better. I will never, ever in my life, you couldn't pay me to wear anything that has Florida on it. That, if that's the bet that I have to lose, fine. But if you see it, that's, like, hey, if you, were hidden, if you were like a hostage, how would we know? That's how you know. I'm wearing any gators here, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. I, won't, I, I don't even want it in my house. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was about to tell the story. The time I got into a fight at a Florida football game with a bunch of Florida players that are now famous.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Tebow era?
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. is very well known for issues with aggression.
0: <laughs> oh, really? I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so you were talking about giving gifts, love yeah, language. Okay. Anyway, giving gifts, my love bachelor language. Bachelor party. And I realized
1: in doing that over the years, you start, you know, you any collecting you do, right? It's always like a hobby. You find people that are into that hobby, you find the people that are into that industry. And so for me with vintage sports, like I've met people through searching for vintage sports gear that I just thought was cool or stuff that I wanted when I was a kid but couldn't afford and all that. So I know that there's a community out there and I really wanted a place to nerd out because usually as, from a media standpoint, like I could write an article about this thing and it'll go to a site and it'll live up there. They'll promote it one day and then it's gone. And I got to keep retweeting it. I don't want to do that. So I was like, okay, knowing forum culture is a thing. Knowing people just want a place to go who like this thing. And that's where you can go. You can focus on that. That's your place. That's your hideaway, if you will. And so I was like, this doesn't exist. So I want to make one. If only because me and my friends will like it. So if this thing, and, and I tell people, I'm like, I'm not trying to like make any money off this sincerely like we're going to eventually sell some of the vintage gear we have because we have like very rare stuff just on deck, but I have a shirt from the Oklahoma Boise State game. Like that shirt like never worn perfect Texas USC Rose Bowl never worn like perfect, but the whole point of it wasn't just hey we like sports it's hey we like this gear like starter jackets things that signify, I see you, doesn't matter where I'm at in the world, doesn't matter who I'm with, but I see you and I go, you've got that one. And it's the one when you were a kid, you saw somebody with it, or you saw it on a commercial, or you were just like, oh my God. And we all have them. Everybody has them that like sports. And so I wanted a place for that like excitement to live. And then I do a personal project every spring and summer, fall, winter. So two projects a year. And some of them are just hobbies, but like one of them is office hours. And it turned into something but i just do it because i'm like you got to stay sharp so for me this is a great winter activity because a it's cold outside so i don't B, the sports world is nuts and so truly and C, the rest of the world is nuts so truly i'm telling people this is my promo for game day grails if you would like to drown in vintage sports gear nostalgia subscribe to game day grails because that's truly what it is i i am like i'm about to post a video Today, because today is the anniversary of the USC notre Dame 2005 game, the Bush-Bush. Today's the anniversary. So we made a little video. I'm going to put it out because that was a sick game. And it doesn't matter anything else. Just remember how sick that game
0: was? Let's just watch
1: the sick game. That's what I want. So if you like that, then that's what I'm doing for
0: you. Uh, on a scale of 100, college, pro.
1: College, I am – Eighty twenty college football, yeah. pro football. I am yeah. ninety ten pro basketball, college basketball. I hate college
0: basketball. <laughs> oh man, they gutted <laughs> college basketball when they did the one and done rule. They gutted it.
1: But it was- isn't even that. The games just aren't good because even I think
0: the one the kids done aren't the- good. I the kids, kids it, aren't good. The kids think- are all in the NBA now.
1: Well, it's not even that. I think what you're seeing now is. The coaches are one and Dunning, and that's the problem. Because what you're seeing is, with the exception of a couple, you're seeing guys be at a school for three years and bounce. And you've never seen that one. Usually, in college basketball, when we grew up watching it, yeah. like those iconic teams, this is year 19 of this person. They built a system. They're great recruiting. Calipari, like, I, you hate on Calipari. He stayed. He's staying. He has to get out of town really quickly sometimes.
0: Burn the files, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Shout out to Calipari. So what else is in your cookies this week, Ernest?
1: Oh man. Okay. Are you seeing an uptick in people during the pandemic playing golf and tennis? Are you seeing it? You're out and about, you're driving around. Do you see people? Pray? I will
0: say this. I am so confused as to what to do. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I am scared to death yeah. of going out, mm-hmm. of being around other people. I have, I said to my wife last night on a walk. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to know how to socialize anymore.
1: Oh, yeah. it's a wrap. And you
0: know me. You yeah. know that you oh, said yeah. it at the top of the show. Okay. I walk into a room. I'm a social being. Mm-hmm. People I'm things. scared yeah. that that's, that that's just not certain, it.
1: There's certain things I'm probably done forever. at. Like I'm probably, it's going to have to be a dive bar that I really love to go back to dive bars after this is over. Because the other thing that this pandemic, and we can get on to kind of the observation, but like the other thing this pandemic pointed out to me is how many people weren't doing the stuff that they probably should have been doing. The people were like, oh, I gotta wash my hands. I'm like, you weren't washing your hands after you use the bathroom? <laughs> like what the hell is going on? Wait, what? They're like, oh, you know, I gotta go back to work. and me wash my hands? I'm like, you weren't washing your hands before you went back to work and touching people's foods and drink, like what? But I digress. So, the golf so and up, what?
0: So to answer your question. Yeah. Yes, I have seen people playing a ton mm-hmm. of golf. I actually live walking distance to two golf courses. Mm-hmm. They're public courses in the largest city park in North America. It weirds me out. I'll be totally honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tennis thing, I'm seeing it all over social media that people are like really getting into tennis. Racket Mag came out like five years ago and Mm -hmm. like blew things up and how they're covering that sport. I worked for somebody that developed a bunch of tennis related items in the fashion world. And so I saw his influence shift the narrative towards it being something that you could use as an expression point
1: the reason that you're seeing that uptick is because they came out and said and they being like Fauci came out and said if you're going to do any sort of outdoor activity as far as sports are concerned the only like group sports in quotes that we are you know suggesting are safe right now golf and tennis you're not around anybody with golf tennis you're so far apart that like the breath isn't spraying on somebody because any other sport you're literally breathing on everybody at all times in smaller spaces so that's the it's a way to work out during covid i think that's the like cultural reason why it's come back but what i'm also noticing is there was a boom in the 70s and 80s i think anytime like america does well at a sport like you see the sport start to get a little more popularity (laughs) so you saw with soccer for a little bit there and i think soccer i'm still big on soccer I'm i'm betting the farm on soccer in America, but tennis popping right now. I'm super into racket. What they do, it feels really okay. I like brands that are welcoming, but when you first encounter them, you you think they're probably not welcoming. Maybe that's a Chicago thing, where it's I'm gonna give you a little stiff arm, try to make sure you're all good, and I'm gonna welcome you in. But I'm into, and I'm actually it's funny where golf culture in and of itself is very exclusive. Tennis culture is very exclusive from a classism standpoint. You can't afford it. But what you're seeing and what I've lived is an experience of people who are middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class, playing these sports. Like I took tennis lessons when I was in first grade. You know sure. what I mean? I, I got a,
0: I got a five iron on my fifth birthday yeah. and I got a golf club every year after that for about 10 years. And then I quit.
1: And I caddied for six summer straight, like talking cash. Oh my God. the Most money I ever made. I'm just, kidding, just like, <laughs> oh yes, $100, I'm going nuts. So I grew up around it, and then plus, you gotta remember culturally in the 90s, two big things happened culturally for gen, late Gen X, early millennials, and that is the Williams sisters and Eldrick Tiger was. Woods. Yep. So we're that generation where, hey, Black kids, you can play these sports. We're like, wait, what? And because like all we had was like Arthur Ashe, you know what I'm saying? Shout out to Arthur Ashe, but there wasn't that entry point, and so it democratized it a little bit. And so we all were like pushed onto the courts and the links, and we all like a bunch of my friends that I grew up with. We all know how to play, but to your point, like we all stopped at some point. So I started getting back into it a couple years ago. My brother-in-law is truly one of the best golfers in America. Like I don't like I'm just like, can you join like the Senior Tour? What's up? Because like. We went to Top Golf real quick, and this man swung this club so well that truly the entire bay of Top Golf stopped watching him swing. Like icon, <laughs> like, everybody like it was like a you know video. The cultural accents, and, and and I think another brand that really does this really well, and it's actually one of the other things that was in my cookies, was like this idea of kind of the preppy prep aesthetic has been lingering for a couple of years that I've noticed, and. In the past couple of years specifically, like past two or three, a couple of brands, there's this one Instagram that's really sick. It's called like, prep's not dead. And it's truly just like waspy 1980s. Give me that blonde hair, crazy, like less than zero James Spader vibe, like just heavy prep, which is not bad. Just growing up and you grew up and look at Esquire and stuff. Rowing Blazers, Rowing Blazers based out of New York. I think the founder was an ex Olympic rower but I'm literally... Jack Carlson.
0: Shout out to Jack Carlson. Shout out to
1: Jack. I'm wearing one of their like blazers, uh, rugby's as we're talking. Like their spring, like their fall winter collection, 2020, I think is going to be one we're going to look back and be like, damn, because here's the crazy stuff. I am a big fan of any and all brands that tell a story through their clothes. And I think a lot of brands think they are just by putting a bunch of buttons on some shit, but there's no story here. And so what well, Roaring Blazers does really well, and I think there's a lot of younger brands that do this. Joe Fresh Goods is always one. He's like streetwear. So Run Blazers legit will do the thing where a lot of people will do collaborations. And I think collaborations a couple years ago oversaturated. So many collaborations. Brands that did not need to ever connect were connecting. It was too much. It was a gimmick. But where Rowing Blazers did well was they stuck to the script. And so the mood board is all super prep. It's all this classic stuff. They had the old, are you a preppy? poster from the preppy handbook and like the 80s and everything
0: shout out to lisa bernbach
1: shout out to her see she's <laughs> out here i think she yeah. she wrote like a sequel to that too so they went here's, the, here's an example of that story so they went and wanted to do an homage to princess diana and so what they did was they were like okay this collection is a tribute to princess diana in the early 80s it's like high low culture and that's my number one thing i'm a big mm-hmm. high low culture person like i really hate crazy logos. I really hate anything that's too much. And I hate anything that's too subtle. Like, I want, like, we're doing both. It's-
0: Totally. It's a custom dress shirt and a Timex with a Velcro watch strap.
1: America, to me, is high-low culture. I think any attempt to make American culture a highbrow is a wasted effort. And I think American culture, lowbrow by default, right? Like, I'm a guy who grew up watching pro wrestling. Like, I refuse to- remove myself from that because that informs my entire aesthetic. It also informs this whole country and all of the culture. See what I'm saying? But going back to Blazers, one Blazers wanted to get, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Princess Diana used to wear this sweater. And it was a sweater with a bunch of sheep on it. It was a red sweater, white sheep on it. They had little graphics of sheep. And then there's one that's black. It's like the black sheep. And she wore it. She was the first influencer, I feel like, when it comes to the subtle, like, I'm telling a story through the clothes. Like, I, this is a funny narrative. And so instead of just redoing the sweater, which a bunch of brands would have normally did, they went and got it. The people who made the sweater originally in the 80s, warm and wonderful, and made the sweater and did like an updated cut on it. And they were like, they created it in 79. She started wearing it and they straight up went and found the person and got them to make the design for the first time since 1994. And that to me is a perfect example because it's like, if you know the story, you're like, damn. But they cared so much about that tradition, again, building connections, that you would go and get a brand that isn't even really active like that. And so they do that up and down the thing. Like, they'll do, like, a legendary prep brands. Like, they did a Sperry collab. I think they did one with Murray's Toggery and Slim, like, Slim Aaron's. They did one with in as well. Just all kinds of stuff. And so that, to me, is a brand that does it really well. And so I really like them. And I haven't, like, gotten a chance to, like, talk to anybody over there, but I would like to definitely, that's a brand of like, I will do a project with them, no question.
0: Yeah, that sweater, it brought such joy Mm -hmm. when I saw it because it's exactly what you're talking about. It's taking someone like a Princess Diana who was so scrutinized, so under the microscope all day, every day for a period of 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And through that entire thing, she was the Epitome of of grace and style. style, and I think that the style part is often overlooked. There's this wonderful. I think Jack was the first person that I saw sharing it again, but I remember it as a kid. She wore a starter jacket. She wore an yeah. Eagles she starter jacket, and I thought that was like the coolest thing mm-hmm. as a little kid. I remember her convertible Audi mm-hmm. was uh, British racing green, and I was just like so excited to see somebody driving a green convertible because I feel like green convertibles are the slow play. They're the sort of the down low cool (laughs) That's part of the reason I made the Fauci cap in forest green. And I feel like, um, taking that sweater, which is packed with messages, lady in red, little red riding hood, the white sheep, the black sheep. I I don't think it's over her heart, but it might as well have been over her heart. I said to my wife when I saw that, I said, I want that sweater. That's so cool. Rowing Blazers is so brilliant because they have at the top a guy who lived the life. Yep. And that's hard. That's hard to do. Ralph can't even say that he lived the life. Right. He aspired to live the life, built the life for himself, and now lives the life. Right. Many brands, Land's End is an example of one, Mm -hmm. started with someone who was a known known in that world. Right. The Land's End guy was an Olympian as well. And mm-hmm. it doesn't happen as much in this day and age. Now mm-hmm. you have Travis Scott putting together a McDonald's menu.
1: But even that is sick to me. I think people are like hating on Travis, but it's- like,
0: Oh no, I'm not saying that it's no, a bad no, I, thing. I know you're not,
1: but I'm just like in general, I think that's a very interesting thing because that represents a completely different thing than what- we're doing if that makes any sense like that to me
0: yeah totally it's
1: a product that is being served to the widest audience possible and i think they planned it that way i think they executed it that way mcdonald's isn't messing with guys like us because they we are not moving cheeseburgers so for somebody to scale yeah of course go get it and also like history because he's the first one since jordan to do that which is nuts to think about and like, he is? he's the first individual to have a single like combo meal named after them. Oh, since wow.
0: Then didn't somebody else just come out with one?
1: Jay Bob. Now you see, now here's the fun part about that whole thing. And this is a little fun little deep dive. They tested that program three years ago. And they used folks who are a little smaller on the scope when it comes to an artist like a Travis Scott. So like Joe Fresh kids, they did it with it here in Chicago and they did it across the country. And they did a test little pilot program because they wanted to see if the correlation between street culture and merch and food could be established. And so they did it. And that's a little sneaky, like it was how fast food restaurants will drop custom or new menu items in the Midwest only and just test it. And if it it does well in Indiana or Missouri or Illinois, then they spread it out nationwide. Like they did that with this campaign and you saw the results and it worked. And so obviously now Jay Balvin's gonna do it, which makes sense. Travis Scott's gonna do it, which makes sense. But artists that level, it makes sense, and it worked. Like the Travis thing, actually, they real smash. Like they moved a lot of units. They did for real. Yeah, like McDonald's, and sold- McDonald's running out of like the ingredients to make like burgers, which is crazy to think about.
0: Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in the drive-through line the day that it launched, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Like and even yeah, the way I'll, that make, he like you're like. I, Travis Scott ain't that great, like you know. I listen. <laughs> I I know the greats, and that's how I feel. But he's also great. So you gotta just all right. That's it's your run. Enjoy it.
0: I'll do. Yeah, and, and I gotta give him props on his Jordan collab. Like I'm, the things that he makes, push they get units. So all right. Well, I really enjoyed talking about this because it's so close to my heart. But I think we should move on. If you were yeah. a cocktail, Ernest, what kind of cocktail would you be?
1: Okay. My cocktail choice is my personal favorite cocktail in the world. It is a country club. This drink was invented by Bill and Brian Doyle Murray. And it is your favorite sparkling wine or champagne. It is in a cup or a pint glass solo cup. If you're outside with ice, that's it. That's all. It is a perfect encapsulation of my entire self in that high, low culture. A little champagne, a little plastic cup, but after a couple of them, you're gonna feel like dancing, and that's the aesthetic I hope to bring to the world.
0: So I got that going for me, which is nice.
1: Yeah. Also, this goes out funny just on some cross cultural stuff. I know more about white people because I saw Caddyshack younger than a lot of my black friends. They're like, "What am I, like, Caddyshack?" I'm serious. Yeah. I and- also just started watching Seinfeld from the beginning. And first of all, the first season of Seinfeld is abysmal. I cannot believe what the hell. Anyway, definitely, I'm on season two now. It's so, I get it, right? I get it now, but there's also so many references that I was like, that's what that is. Because you hear cultural references when people are talking about them. And like when you're younger, you don't know. So it's like, ha, 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 yeah, that's funny. And you don't really know. But it was like, oh, that's what Boca Vista is. Like I truly was, just, I thought that was like a reference to something. I didn't know what it was. And I finally saw it. And I was like, oh. Yeah. So cultural exchange. It's important.
0: Our nine-year-old is hard up when you double dip the chip. She is pissed. And there are so many things that happened during our youth Mm -hmm. that I didn't realize weren't already established. And the least of them, but somehow also the most of them, is Anchorman. Anchorman Mm -hmm. seems to have penetrated in a very odd way where so much so many of the phrases so many of the ways that sentences were put together in that beautiful script from adam mckay and and will ferrell
1: the movies that are it's funny to think about but the movies that i've seen now have the most cultural appeal that came out when we were like younger that like little kids are now watching oh you gotta see this is a classic super bad mean girls yep and anchorman those three. There's even movies where they weren't a big deal when they came out, but like now nah, they're a big deal. People are super in a, like hot rod now. Like hot rods. Oh, it's a cool. Oh yeah.
0: Hot.
1: You're like, really? Okay. And it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. But I okay. I but I like, guess was... how I'm sure people felt about like half baked. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is the greatest movie of all
0: time. Well, okay, Ernest. <laughs> yeah. What song or movie is your favorite background noise?
1: So I have a playlist that i have called writing time which is when i play when it's writing time and number one song on that list my own personal motivator is a song called trap or die it is from young jeezy who is now just jeezy He grew up and features one half of ugk uh bun b and a very underrated rapper named slick puller and this song came out i think maybe 2004 late 04 early 05 and when i tell you you talk about motivation you talk about I can do this. And I think sometimes even the most creative folks need inspiration. And so sometimes you have to get the mentality, especially when you're working on a new thing. Like my philosophy is you got to do, and I got this from this guy, Josh Spector, but you got to do, if you like the thing, you got to be willing to do it a hundred times. And so that's that Ira Glass, like talent and taste level thing. And so we all know the reason people don't stick with stuff, the reason people don't stick with newsletters, for example, is because their taste level is so high and they're like embarrassed that they're not good yet. And it's you no, know, like you have to just trap it out because that's truly what it is It's about the grind of doing it. And that's the fun part. The learning's the fun part, all of that. So you trap or die. Cause truly you like, that's, the, those are the options. You're going to figure it out or you're not.
0: Dude, and I love that.
1: Oh, it's so good. I'm a person where it's, I'm very big. Like it's bigger than me. I think a lot of people are motivated by proving people wrong. Somebody who doubted them in the past, somebody who told them they weren't, gonna ever be anything? All that. I do the opposite. My life got better and I started making more money when I started ignoring the people who doubted me and focusing on proving the people who believed in me. I want the people who were supporting me when I had no followers, when I was sleeping on Hank's floor to look like they were the smartest people in the world, like scouts that picked the Hall of Famer. I want them to be like to be able, like I want my mom to be able to talk shit. <laughs> I want my mother-in-law to be able to talk shit, to be like, Oh, Ernest is at it again. I want that for them because they believed in me. So I don't want to let them down, if that makes any sense.
0: You got to focus on the positive. You got to focus on the future. And you've got, it is trap or die.
1: Mm-hmm. That's life. Every,
0: every day. Yeah.
1: And I'm very big on, yo, everything happens for a reason. And the, the thing I get annoyed by, and I know you've seen this too. We've all had those days where it's like, nobody's messing with my stuff. Nobody thinks this is cool. Nobody's doing anything that's like, paying attention to my stuff, anything. And the days where you don't have that validation from outside sources are the days where you gotta trap it out because it's not going to come to you. It's not gonna to come to you. No one's gonna look at your thing. The other thing about it, people don't pay attention to your stuff for a long time, even your friends and loved ones. And that's okay, but you have to be okay with that. You're gonna grind it out and flesh this idea out to the best possible representation of your vision that you had or it's going to die. So figure it out. And you're going to get stuck, you're going to get frustrated, you're going to get mad, but trap or die. And that's, that's also just like a reflection on like life too, because I think I get annoyed with media. And one of my biggest gripes with media is that other than the fact that it's like the same 40 people who just like flock from job to job, job to job, I get very annoyed because we've built an industry where the kids are discouraged from figuring it out. You gotta come in, you gotta, they're gonna make you polished turds for a couple years, maybe you'll get a couple of opportunities, but on the side, again, I know this for a fact because they told us, we don't want you doing anything on the side. We don't want you to learn outside of this. And then what happens is people will dedicate their entire selves to an organization or a business or a brand, wake up six years later, you don't know how to do anything. You weren't trapping, you were, st- you were trying to climb a ladder when you should have been trapping or dying. And that's the difference, and that's why I tell every you know kid who wants to do something, I'm like, start your own thing first, because I get one of two things is going to happen: either you're going to have learn a skill that's going to be able to make your stuff better at their day job, or you're going to get so good at the side thing that they're just going to pay. You.
0: <laughs> they're just going to yes, pay. Yes, I was hired on my blog for a mm-hmm. job that then I went into, and I was a salesperson, I was a designer, I was. marketer. I built the e-commerce website. I produced a video. I made maker culture happen for this Mm -hmm. manufacturer. And I was told about six months in, you cannot post another blog post Mm -hmm. until you sell X number of units. Yep. And I took them at their word. I sold through those. I posted. They said, why are you posting? You should not be posting. And I said, you hired me because of this Website.
1: like That's why I'm here.
0: What did you expect? That I was going to stop doing the website because of this job? And so I didn't get get to keep the job. A lot
1: of creators, a lot of times, and I want to tell folks who aren't necessarily in this world a lot, if you are a creative and you have a certain amount of influence, you have a certain aesthetic and you're early on something, there is a 100% chance that there is someone sitting at a brand who is lurking your account and we talked about this and it's not something to be upset about so don't get like discouraged by any means but someone's looking at your account and they're looking at what you're doing and they're looking at what you're doing because they need you more than you need them and so the same situation that happened to you is the same situation that's happening to a lot of creatives where like you can't and i think a lot of people get frustrated like why am i not getting hired why am i not getting called back and it's because if you did the person who is biting your shit wouldn't have anything to bite And you're probably going to make them look bad because you're the one that they've been ripping off the whole time. That's happened to me. Like I've been told that I've seen stuff that I've done be ripped off and then you try to work with the company and I get it. I can't have you working here because then I'll look bad. And so all of that is important to remember because any job that makes you feel that way, especially now, bad idea.
0: I will piggyback Mm. on that will make me look bad and say there have been circumstances where, my aesthetic my my personal brand has been applied to a big corporate conglomerate mm-hmm. and it hasn't worked mm-hmm. in the same way because it got shaded it yeah. got watered down or it was it got a tinge of of polish yeah. that perhaps it didn't necessarily need or
1: had to go through two different levels of legal for some reason
0: 10 different levels of legal sometimes <laughs> no joke Like that ultimately I think is where creatives who don't play the commercial game Mm
1: -hmm.
0: are right. And at the same time, I love bridging that. I love straddling the line between commerce and culture. Right. And I think that what I love about it is that it's what I know I've been marketed to my whole life. You were saying 18 to 34, but like, I know all the words to the Toys R Us theme song for one reason, because I sat in front of that Zenith television set night, day, morning, you name it. I could tell you program schedules dating back to like 1983. Right. And I don't, I didn't know how to read in
1: 1983. So like,
0: I, I still find myself on Saturday pining for a cheesy sitcom, That would have aired in reruns on KPLR channel 11 here on our (laughs) UHF. And that's the other thing. Like I know about UHF versus VHF. And I remember like scanning the dial, looking for like weird Chuck Norris movies at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. Only
1: the strong, the Capoeira movie.
0: Oh man. So good. (laughs) I was on like every day. All of the Canon films, if you haven't seen the mm-hmm. Canon Films documentary, like oh it it changed the way that Hollywood does movies. It took the power from the studio mm-hmm. and it put it in the hands of the star because they were the first people to pay Sylvester Stallone, I think it was fifteen million dollars. And something like that, yeah. All all that stuff means something to us in a way that I don't think that the people that are leading the brands, that it means that to them. I think that they're more interested in like just moving units. And
1: that's real. That is a metaphor too, because I think what happens and we've seen it a lot is this whole, I like this thing and I want to capture this market, but I don't know how to touch it. And that's why I like the, the idea of a share of culture metric is sick because then it's, you got to do your thing and you got to be able to, show up and be authentic in these spaces. And a lot of people can't do that. And a lot of people don't want to put the work in or even admit that they don't necessarily know as much as they think they do about a certain culture. And I think that's a big piece of it. It's just saying, okay, you're not a bad person for not knowing what's going on, but it's that fossilization. Like, are you willing to go spend the time and develop a sense of community or a relationship with the people who are in this market and if you are, like, odds are people respect that. They see that you're actually legit and will you know, buy your thing or they'll associate with you because you represent something that they know aligns with them. Again, brands we choose. <laughs> see what I did, Whoa. Like, like what I did. Do you? What's your motto? Mm, if not us, then who? I think it's a representation of a lot of just personal feelings. I think I've waited so long in my life for somebody to come along and do the thing that I wanted. And so I had to just officially be like, okay, if it's not gonna be me, who is it gonna be? And so if anything, that's the approach I take. And why I think sometimes, I'm probably not as successful as I could be because I'm sometimes the first one to do it. And so you get the rough edges rubbed out with me and then somebody takes it and makes much money. So I still believe that because it needs to exist, because there's an audience that needs to be around it or needs to support it or wants this thing or wants this thing to exist, I think it's a responsibility if you have a skill set. To do it and nobody else is going to do it so you might as well get to it
0: i love it well, ernest it was really great to talk to you today My thank man. you so much for coming on the show And Max,
1: this is so great i'm happy to see you. you got your platform popping folks thanks so much for letting me you know be a part of your world here today if you want to follow me ernest wilkins on everything A, hey, even though i am an a plus player you know what i'm saying but yeah ernest wilkins on all social media and then officehours.substack.com and gamedaygrails.substack.com come hang out with us it's going to be a lot
0: of fun thanks man this is so much fun I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ernest Wilkins find his work and subscribe to his popular daily email newsletter at officehours.substack.com you can find him at Ernest Wilkins that's at E-R-N-E-S-T W-I-L-K-I-N-S everywhere you get your social media this is the No First Podcast the No First Podcast is a production of All Plat Out our theme song is That's Right by Pop Villains Thanks to Marla, Stella, and Ruby. Stay safe, stay healthy, and know first who you are. What? Can you give it to me with five syllables? What? what?